Thanks for tuning in to Movie Geeks United, everyone. This is Jamie. Tonight uh, will be unique because it's uh, just me and Adam tonight. We're doing Blu-rays this evening. Uh, Jerry and Dean are off this week. So how are you doing, man? I'm doing good, doing doing well. Just uh, you know, just finished um, seeing Annihilation this afternoon because uh, we our press screening was kind of late in the week and. When we have a late press screening, I just go see it with a paying audience. It doesn't help me because I, my deadline for my print stuff is on Tuesday. So I just, uh, if it's a later in the week thing, I just wait till see it with a public, private, public audience. I'll get it out. So I did, and I, uh, I, I didn't think it was as good as Ex Machina. I was kind of let down. It's very derivative of a lot of these alien invasion type there were elements of arrival yeah. in it I thought and just I was Yeah, you really know what it reminded me of? Uh it reminded me of something like uh Event Horizon or Solaris or something. Yeah. Um and it, it I liked it. I, I wasn't over the moon with it, but um it does Thank play you. a little bit more like a like a horror film than a sci fi. And I know those two are closely intertwined. But this felt a little bit more on the horror side for me. There are moments that I thought were super cool. Uh, and the, the musical score, especially at the conclusion of it, I was like crazy about. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, it's not terrible. I, I didn't mean to give the impression that I hated it. It's just, it was just a bit of a letdown after Ex Machina because I, I thought that was pretty strong. And um, yeah. I, um, you know, so so yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Well, it's got that great, uh, that, that, that great conception of the bear, I mean, which is one of the <laughs> scariest elements of the movie. But it doesn't have any and, – and it is supposed to be a little hallucinogenic, but it, at the same time, it doesn't have any wow moments, uh, like off-the-wall moments, like that one moment where uh, Oscar Isaac dances in Ex Machina. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Very true. Yeah, it. Uh, I I don't know. It just I felt like, uh, you know, that's that's a bad thing when when a director makes a debut film and he just blows you out, blows it out of the water right off the bat, and you're waiting for the second one, and it kind of that's set themselves up for a high bar, and I think that's what happened here. It's a very attractive it, movie. Uh, I mean, even the closing credits are very attractive. I, I stayed and watched oh, yeah. the closing credits because they were so pretty. <laughs> I can't say that about a lot of movies. It's true. It's very, very true. I mean, uh, multicolored, I guess is a good, good way to put it. But I, I wonder I if everyone. Red... I wonder if uh, before you move on to the next one, I wonder if no. anyone has ever like put in their review, like a positive review of the closing credits. <laughs> <laughs> has that ever happened? That's a good question. I, I bet somebody has uh, referenced the opening credits, though, especially when those Saul Bass. You know, opening yeah. credits for uh, like even Cape Fear or Age of Innocence or some of those. You know, those are awesome. I, uh, but when, when, I when, a, when a reviewer says that when a reviewer says that they love the closing credits, what they really read is they got it was over. But I, I don't mean that when I say <laughs> that I like these closing credits. They're they're very attractively designed. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you you saw what else? Oh, I was going to say I saw Red Sparrow also. Um, which is the new, you know, Francis Lawrence, Jennifer Lawrence collaboration. I guess the first time they've worked together since the Hunger Games franchise. 
But uh, we had a screening for that Thursday of last week, and it opens next Friday. And um, we actually received an email from Francis Lawrence, the director. It was interesting. He says that we should be careful not to reveal the ending. Uh, please don't right. do us a disservice by doing that. So I <laughs> have to tread lightly. But uh, I, I felt like it's way over long, to be honest. I just the it's it's overkill. It's two hours and nineteen minutes, and there's no reason why a, a simple spy story should take that long to to unfurl. Uh, I felt like the first 45 minutes of the movie could have easily been reduced to a five-minute or ten-minute tops montage. It's just all the training stuff she goes through, and uh, but uh, and the plot really doesn't kick in until about the 75-minute mark. Which was, wow! And by that time, you're just kind of bludgeoned over the head with all the preamble, I guess you would say. But um, but. Uh, there's some. It's. I, I will say this about it. It has one of the most uh, memorable torture scenes I've seen in a film, I think, ever. Because they take a character and tie him to a chair, and they use a uh, a skin grafting device, the thing they take the skin off with, and they threaten to go all the way down to the bone if he doesn't give them the uh, the information they're seeking. <laughs> so wow. they just keep grafting his skin repeatedly. Wow. I, I just I just <laughs> I, bought a ticket. I mean, I can't, I can't resist that. Oh man! Well, here, well, here I, I am thinking I just see the movie for uh, Jennifer Lawrence's nude scenes, but that skin graft <laughs> scene that that really sold me. <laughs> I get you. Well, she is fully fully nude in the film, which was kind of a surprise too. That's um, you know, uh, definitely not the Jennifer Lawrence from uh, the Hunger Games. That's for sure. She's uh, mm. coming of age, I guess. But you know, it's it's. It's okay, but the, I think the overlink just really, really hurt it. It just detracted from the experience for me. But um, overall, not bad. You know, just kind of average. So those are the two big. Are there are there any life. are there any nude scenes where she looks like the spy who came in from the cold? <laughs> <laughs> can't say that. <laughs> no, uh, that's can't terrible. say that. That's terrible. But she does show her Russia house, which is good. That's good. All right. <laughs> that she does. That she what does. All right. Yeah. So uh, what what are we doing? Are they February Blu-rays? Is that, is that the month? Yeah, it's February. Yeah, yeah. Fe- okay. February okay. Blu-rays. And uh, we can jump on in there, uh, unless you want to talk about Black Panther. <laughs> Which I don't know if you guys have discussed that already or not. I, I haven't. I haven't. I haven't even seen it yet. I plan to see it this week. I just got back yeah. into uh, going to the theater this week. I've been missing mm-hmm. out on some things. Um, so I plan to see that. I plan to see the Fifty Shades. I mean, why not? I've seen the first sure. two. I'll see this third one. I plan to go see um, Hostels. One of the few screenings it has during the day because I haven't checked that out yet. But. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I and game night. I need to, I need to stock up, and next weekend, of course, is like Death Wish too. In addition to Black Sparrow, which is oh, kind of like a, a great, uh, a great weekend. Uh, Oscar weekend is a great time to release uh, Death Wish, because that's a movie that uh, that's a movie that is very strongly, uh, you know, fuck prestige. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh well, you know, Eli Roth is always interesting if nothing else. He's always got something up his sleeve. Uh love him or hate him. So uh he's 
he's never dull, <laughs> whether you love yeah. him or hate him. So I, I'm curious. I'm very, very curious about it. And we're not getting a press screening for it. Um, so I, I guess we'll just have to go see that one with a paying audience as well. But that's not – Yeah, not nothing, I mean, uh, we live in a – we live in a time too where it's unusual that Bruce Willis has a theatrical release. You yeah. Know, if it's not a, if it's not a diehard movie because he's done a lot of like uh, direct uh, uh, video. Um, what's the thing? POV? Uh, DOV? Uh, yeah, VOD, video on demand. Yeah. VOD. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sorry, a lot, a lot of that going on. I know. Twenty. It's weird, isn't it? Like uh, twenty-five years ago, if somebody had told us that. Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis and <laughs> Stallone. Well, Stallone, not so much, but especially those two, Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis, would be going straight to video pretty much. We would have, we wouldn't have believed it. I mean, it, yeah, you know. yeah, and 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 they did their fair share of movies back then that today would only fit in the uh, the VOD mold. I mean, okay. they they would not they would not release. Uh, Oscar, stop her! My mom will shoot, or uh, <laughs> oh collateral damage, or any of that stuff in the theater today. Yeah, this is that's a good point. That's that's a very very good point. Yeah, so it's just uh, it's the time we live in, I guess. But yeah, well, we can jump in with the uh, the Blu-ray stuff if you wanna wanna go ahead and uh, do this. Yeah, all I really yeah. want to know this is this is the only thing I want on the Blu-ray front. I want a yeah. 4K. I want a 4K restoration of Cops and Robbersons. Am I going to see that this month? <laughs> Not this month. <laughs> Damn. Although uh, you know that I think that title is owned by Sony, and they they are putting out uh, those video on demand. I mean those uh, on demand Blu-rays. You know. Uh, and they've done some questionable titles, so it wouldn't surprise me. They did the the Belushi movie Neighbors, which was kind of a surprise. So, oh wow! <laughs> you never know. You never that, know. That movie, that movie, that movie has a following. I mean, I remember it sure that does, movie yeah. ravaged. That movie was just like beaten down when it came out, and mm-hmm. then you heard the chorus of people saying, "No, it's a undiscovered gem, especially in this age where." Uncomfortable comedy is a thing with like curb your enthusiasm and that kind of thing, uh, and it's true. Like uncomfortable comedy has really come into its own, and so I yeah. think they look at neighbors neighbors as an early example of that. I haven't seen yeah, it in so long. Ahead, ahead of the curve, yeah. It's been a long time for me. I, I need to go revisit that. I actually do, but um, but yeah, we'll go back to February sixth. We'll we'll just oh go ahead. What were you gonna say? No, go ahead. No. I was going to say, uh, we'll just go back to the first of the month. We'll work our way forward and um, go with the Criterion title, which uh, I just – I had never seen it. I finally got around to looking at it yesterday. Really, really good film, Elevator to the Gallows, which uh, hmm. has that um, score by ja- by uh, Miles Davis, which was kind of an interesting you know combination. Louis Maul directed and uh, – 24 years old when he made this, his feature debut. Isn't that amazing to think that he was 24? Oh, wow. It's it's one of these, you know, it's a film noir, of course, but uh, it has, it really keeps you guessing as to what the outcome of it is going to be. And it's just basically about this guy who 
wants to plan the perfect crime, and he and then he winds up getting stuck in an elevator, and then uh, he's accused of a crime he didn't commit that takes place when somebody steals his car, and and, and the people who stole his cars he's mistaken gets mistaken identity, and it just goes off in all these different directions. It's very very interesting. It has John Moreau in it. Um, yeah, and uh, it's just uh, it's, and, and I, it's, I, in, it's in French. It's in French. It is, yeah, yeah. It's French, and that's what's interesting about it. It's, it's a French film, but it has the score by Miles Davis, which is <laughs> just interesting. So I, mm. I, um, I thought it was great. I thought it was really, really good. Uh, and some nice extras. They have a 2005 interview with John Moreau, and and some archived interviews with uh, Louis Mall. And uh, there's footage of Miles Davis uh, in the soundtrack recording session on here. So. That's wow. kind of neat. Yeah, so... Wow, and it's, 50, it's, 58. Yeah, 58. Yeah, 1958, mm. yeah. I, uh, yeah, I'm going to vouch for that one. It's uh, It had been released uh, on Criterion DVD, but they, they did a nice little restoration. It uh, looks great, and uh, I, I, I had... It was on my to-do list. I've had it on that list forever to see it, and I finally... When they sent me one to review, I got it, and I'm glad I did, because it's really, really good, so... I'm ashamed uh, that I've never seen the or paid attention to the soundtrack to that movie. Yeah, uh, yeah. From Miles should, Davis. Exactly. You should seek that one out, I believe, with your uh, proclivity to collecting vinyl there. Uh, <laughs> you should uh, definitely. I mean, hell, I, I, got a, I got a pristine copy of the soundtrack to Mike Tudor the other day. So I, you know, <laughs> it seems like I'd be open to a Miles Davis soundtrack. Right. Of course. <laughs> Absolutely, I say go for it if you can find one. So, and it doesn't uh, set you back too much. But um, so, I guess we all remember when uh, Lou Ferrigno was trying to make a big screen career for himself after the Incredible Hulk television series, and one of the uh, the things he did was uh, Sinbad of the Seven Seas from 1989. <laughs> so, Kino, that's not a criteria, is it? No, no, that's a Keno. <laughs> But uh, I had to mention it, though, because there was that awkward moment when he was uh, – what was the other series of movies he did? I can't remember. Uh, there was another – he did uh, – he did there – were, there were a pair of them. Um, I can't remember what it was, but he did something besides that, but he kept doing did all he, these Did things. he do like a Hercules? Yeah, that's what it was. I think it was Hercules. Yeah, yeah, he did two Hercules films. Yep, I just couldn't, I couldn't remember. Yeah, you're exactly right. Mm-hmm. I just yeah. love how you went from Miles Davis to Lou Ferrigno, man. Lou Ferrigno, <laughs> <laughs> I know. We, we run the gamut here, folks. I'm telling you, how's that for? Variety? I hope, I hope nobody, I hope nobody out there gets confused and thinks that Miles Davis scored a Lou Ferrigno movie. Uh, that would be tragic. <laughs> yeah, let's clear that up right now. How about it? <laughs> yeah. So, well, uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis will go from uh, Miles Davis to Lou Ferrigno to Herschel Gordon Lewis, the uh, <laughs> the Gore King. And his 1967 film, The Gruesome Twosome, has been issued by Arrow. And um, that's one I've never seen. I've seen some of the Herschel Gordon Lewis stuff, but that's one I have not. But the title pops up from time to time, and they've issued what that year is one. That? And sixty-seven. Uh, yeah. Oh, is that is that pre-Blood Feast? 
Uh, it was right after it, I think. It was uh, just a okay. couple of years after. Yeah, because I think he did Blood Feast. He did 2,000 Maniacs, and then uh, this might have been the third one. I'm thinking, uh, but wow. it's right, you know, just right after. Yeah. So. Wow. Well, he did. Well, of, he did Blood Feast. He did Blood Feast a lot earlier than I thought he did. What did he do? Yeah. Like Blood Feast, like in the not long after the Kennedy assassination. That's right. Yeah, I think it was '63. I think you're right because I believe, if memory serves correct, 2000 Maniacs was '63. I believe. Wow. This is a 64, 65. My parents actually saw 2000 Maniacs in, in a drive-in theater when they were dating, which is, they were on a double date with wow. a couple. And how, how long no did they last? They, <laughs> well, my parents lasted 19 years as a couple, but... Uh, they, All right, well, that's pretty good. <laughs> but uh, the other couple actually made it until the, they uh, they both passed away. So uh, wow. must not have been the worst thing in the world, but yeah, they they went into it I not saw, knowing what they were I, getting into. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I would imagine. So I saw Ten Thousand Maniacs with a girlfriend of mine, and we didn't last very long. So uh, <laughs> maybe we should maybe we should have seen Two Thousand Maniacs instead. Yeah, that might have been less uh, <laughs> less pressure, <laughs> but uh, a lower a lower number of maniacs anyway. So. Uh, yeah, there's uh so did you ever get around to seeing and this is a newer release, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are on it. Uh it was released February sixth, Suburbicon, the uh the George Clooney thing. It was uh you know, they took an old Cohen Brothers script and dusted it off and and uh yeah. or Clooney did. And I, I, I saw uh that. I saw maybe twenty minutes of it. Yeah. Uh and I, I it was one of those movies where I was just not in the mood. Um yeah, right. And I, I I don't know that it, it, I know some people were very offended by it, and other people said no 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 it's it's the tone it's the kind of the it's the parody of the fifties niceties and all that kind of stuff to leave it to Beaver mixed in mm-hmm. with the the uh, you know these really hotbed issues um, yeah but I I I wouldn't defend it or. Or prosecute it because uh, I didn't see enough of it. I just was not into what I saw. Yeah, it's not a great movie. I, I, it wasn't nearly as bad as everybody said it was. I just expected to see uh, the worst thing ever when I went into it, and it wasn't. You know, it's tolerable. It's definitely not not anything great, but um, and it it has these mm, tone. There's two different story threads that seem to be at odds with one another, that tonally they never seem to be able to congeal into one, I guess you would say. Yeah. But, uh, I was just curious. It's interesting that, that was, I mean, Clooney, Clooney can make, uh, I mean, Good Night and Good Luck is very, it's very good. Yeah. But, uh, and, but correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, he has directed some things that just don't don't fly very well. And, and I, I'm prone to like his approach because he's a big fan of the 70s filmmaking but you know the the ides of march is just kind of blah i hear that suburbicon is kind of blah and it is uh so i i I don't know maybe he i mean it's an old coen brothers script maybe there's a reason why they never pulled it out and did it themselves yeah good point that's true yeah it's funny one of my colleagues he he hated it i mean he just thought it was just terrible and uh, I actually put it on his year-end worst list, and 
he said that uh, it was surprising to him that Clooney seems to be one one of these rare breeds of directors who gets worse with each film. Like he started out of the gate really strong, and each with each successive film, he's, it's just he gets worse and worse, and he can't understand that. <laughs> What's yeah, that's kind of true. I, I mean, I, I love when he chooses to do films of that ilk from yeah. other writer other writer directors. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think he has generally good taste in terms of working with others. Yeah, it's very very strange, but yeah, it's a misfire. It's a misfire, and Paramount uh, wasn't wasn't uh, hitting on many cylinders towards the end of last year because they had a, a flop with Mother, which we you know we liked it, but audiences didn't care much for it. And then Suburbicon, and then Downsizing. So it's those were like three three. Uh, Failures in a row for them, so not yeah. a good monuments. Man. Not a good fall. That's the other one. Yeah, that's the other one that he did that was oh, bad. That was terrible. I, that was insufferable almost for me, and I just I could not yeah. wait for that to be over. <laughs> yeah, and how could you foul up a, a, a cast a cast like that? How could you foul exactly. that up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I remember when I saw that one, I I just could not. I mean, Suburbicon was at least watchable, and that was un, almost unwatchable to me. It was just, ugh, dreadful. But um, but anyway, we'll move on to another release. How about Martha Coolidge? We talk about her occasionally on the show here. How about uh, her 1994 film Angie, which has been issued by Kino, and uh, Gina Davis. Yeah, Gina Davis, that's right. James Gandolfini. And, mm. um, you know, I can't say I ever saw it. And Stephen Ray, uh, Ray, Stephen Ray from Crying Game, he's in it too. Uh, yeah, I, I think I saw it when it came out, but it's been so long, I don't think I remember much about it. But, is that, you know, uh, she, is she like, uh, that seems so odd, Gina Davis and James Gandolfini and then Stephen Ray. Is she like a housewife that's a hit woman or something? Or yeah, I think that's what it was. Yeah, she's um, yeah, she's uh, it's uh, the the tag the uh, uh, the the copy on it says that she's uh, a young Brooklyn-born woman who's witty, irreverent, and irresistible with her wild ambitions and stubborn independence. And you won't let anyone oh. or anything stand in the way of her dreams. And she finds okay. out she's pregnant it's, by her long time. It's not a hit woman. She so, dumps no, her no, plumber no, no. boyfriend dumps her plumber boyfriend played by Gandolfini to date a lawyer That's played it. by Stephen Ray. That's it. Boy, yes. Coming back to you. I can't imagine the fireworks that lit up between Gina Davis and Stephen Ray in that movie. It's just uh, <laughs> mind boggling. Oh boy. Yeah. I like Martha so, Coolidge though. Um, yeah, we don't see much of her anymore, right? She don't doesn't not very active, or is she doing television? I'm not sure. She might be one of those doing television. I'm not. I don't. I don't yeah. know. She was. She was really uh, uh, cranking them out there for a while in the late '80s, early '90s. But it's kind of as was Gina Davis. Gina, Gina Davis had her time in the. So this must have been like her follow up to. Uh, Thelma and Louise, Angie. It's a couple of years after, yeah. Oh, Thelma, yeah, Thelma and Louise, ninety ninety one, right? Yeah, it's like three years later. But, a- accidental, uh, accidental tourist was eighty eight. So uh, yeah, every three years she'd uh, 
she'd reemerge <laughs> <laughs> from her cocoon. <laughs> yeah, she was. Uh, you know, the the running gag is still that she and uh, that uh, Rennie Harlan they single handedly uh, sank uh, Carolco Pictures with the uh, yeah. <laughs> Cutthroat Island. <laughs> That was on TV uh, the other day, and I watched—I'd never seen a frame of Cutthroat Island, and it was on oh. Stars or Stars or something. So I turned it on, and uh, I couldn't watch much of it. But uh, there was Frank Langella as the lead baddie pirate. That—that uh, <laughs> that was pretty amusing. <laughs> oh, you know, uh, that would—that would be great if they did a. They should do a. I'm sure they may have done it already. It's New Beverly. They should do a. a double feature of that and of Polanski's Pirates. So that would be a great double bill, right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was just thinking about Man, that. They, be, they, be, they better charge half price that night. But I like uh <laughs> I like I like Long Kiss Good Night. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It has its moments. Yeah. It's definitely a step up from Cutthroat Island. I don't know what they were thinking there. I think it it cost like ninety million dollars and it grossed like ten or something ridiculous like that. It was like terrible, terrible. Uh, yeah. Anyway, you gotta you gotta uh, you gotta think too like how poorly run some of these companies might have been because Coralco yeah. had the, the huge success with Terminator Two. Yeah, um, the Rambo and the, and the Rambo movies. Uh, you would think that they'd be able to afford a, a loss like that, but it, it, same thing with Orion. I don't know yeah. the whole story there, but Orion was going out of business when they had like two Best Picture winners. Yeah, Silence <laughs> of the Lambs, for sure. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah, because they dumped uh, Silence of the Lambs in theaters in February, and that was because they literally could not afford to release it. You know, they ran out of cash, and they were going to put it out, I think, what, fall of 91 or something, and they had to delay it because they ran out of cash flow or something like that. It was, it was, yeah, uh, and I, I recall seeing Silence of the Lambs at a, at a screening, at a at not a screening, but a, uh, you know how they used to on Saturdays, they used to have a sneak preview for the general yeah, public yeah. where you pay, pay for one movie and stay for another one, and you see right. one yep. movie early, and Silence of the Lambs mm-hmm. was a week or so early, and they followed it with, Dances with Wolves, which I hadn't seen yet. So they had two Best Picture winners, uh, literally at the same playing at the same time. Because wasn't wasn't weren't they behind Dances with Wolves too? Yeah, they were. That's exactly right. Yeah, and I said fall of ninety one. I meant fall of ninety because it came out in February of ninety one. When it came out, yeah. Yeah. So you're you're right. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, Criterion just issued Silence of the Lambs uh, in their. Uh, you know, it was available on. As part of their uh, yeah. DVD collection originally, and there were some extras that they held the rights to, but they never reissued it on Blu-ray until now. And it's uh, it's it's quite a nice package of stuff they put together for it, with uh, a lot of a lot of extras that some of them carried over from their previous DVD, and then they've you know redone the picture, of course. And I think Jonathan Demi was involved in the um, the, uh, the the transfer on this one. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah. I think I, I think I had, I think I had the Criterion Laserdisc uh, of that back in the day. Yeah, but uh, 
can't help but think of Dean, though, because all of the uh, the behind-the-scenes uh, interviews are put together by Laurent Boutereau. You know, Dean's always complaining about him, about his stuff. So yeah. They're, uh, it's a Laurent Boutereau uh, featurette-type thing. There's a 52 minutes of interviews with Jodie Foster and Jonathan Demi, and then there's the 56-minute documentary on the making of, and the uh, and there's 38 minutes of uh, deleted scenes. So, so in, in fact, there are supposedly 15 more minutes of deleted scenes than uh, on the previous Blu-ray. And then there's the uh, two commentaries that they have here, the two audio, the one from the Laserdisc, as you were talking about, and then the, the newer one. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I guess you saw that... Uh, Phantom Thread was dedicated to Jonathan to me that he dedicated that, which I thought was a nice touch. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. He was a very, he was a very, uh, he was a very unique filmmaker. He said that. Um, yeah. He said that the last day of shooting is when he found out that uh, Jonathan Demi was dead. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and he yeah. had been so encouraging, encouraging to. Paul Thomas Anderson <clears throat> throughout his career. That's that's what I, you hear a lot from people now is how just <clears throat> encouraging he was to just a wide spectrum of filmmakers, many of whom were very different from him. Yeah. Um, he was a champion. He sure was, yeah. And he uh, just seemed like a really gracious guy, you know, came across that way and such a diverse you know, such, such a diverse body of work. It, it is pretty amazing uh-huh. when you think about it. It's pretty amazing. Uh, we'll go back to uh, 80s dribble again with a baby secret of the lost legend. Ooh. <laughs> Starring William Cat and Sean Young. Wow. <laughs> he knows that issued this one. Uh, directed by B.W. Uh, L. Norton, who's also famous for doing the sequel to American Graffiti. <laughs> More American graffiti. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, mm. yeah. Sean Young I, and I don't, know, I don't know what to say about uh, about Baby, but uh, I do remember it being uh, – I do remember when it came out when I was yeah. a teenager. As for more American graffiti, uh, uh, we could have done <laughs> yeah. with less American graffiti. Yeah, well, Kino's really cranking them out. That was one, and they've also issued B.I. <laughs> Warshawski <laughs> – <laughs> really? Uh, Charles Erning, yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Directed by Jeff Canoe so of Tough Guys and Revenge of the Nerds fame. They, yeah. they released that, but they can't come out with the Cops and Robertsons. It's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I know. Yeah. I, I remember V.I. Warshawski. And I was watching <laughs> I was watching a Kathleen Turner movie the other day. Oh, I was rewatching War of the Roses, and... Um, Man, she was she was a she was a force back then, Kathleen Turner, and maybe it all yeah. started to end with Vi Warshawski. Maybe that's that's one of those Hollywood pictures, isn't it, from the early nineties? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. uh, Kino has licensed all of those titles, the Touchstone and the Hollywood pictures, because apparently Disney is trying to pretend like those things never happened. Uh, they just have no interest in putting those out. Any of those movies right. from the '90s and 2000s, they're just like trying to uh, erase that history, which I think is kind of sad because there were, 
you know, some interesting movies that came out during that time. And, and some of the movies, you know, Disney was doing some interesting things. Not everything had to be a gargantuan blockbuster. And, you know, when they were doing things like When a Man Loves a Woman and What's Love Got mm-hmm. to Do With It and titles like that, they were well, there actually were, good there were, movies. Yeah, there were some good, uh, some good films. But I mean, the, the the vast majority of them were disposable. I, I remember they must have made a lot of movies under that banner. Yeah, because they seem they seem to come out like every week or other week, uh, and most of them were like cable kind of movies. But um, but uh, but uh, Touchstone was. I remember when Touchstone came out of the gate uh, as the adult uh, uh, adult part of Disney. Like everyone mm-hmm. was shocked that uh, that Ruthless People was a movie that was associated with Disney uh, yeah. because it was uh, it was vulgar. <laughs> it's hysterical, but it's vulgar. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Those were interesting times, and uh, when smaller, when they were actually interested in making smaller movies, and it's kind of kind of sad that that yeah. went away. And that's what worries is troublesome to me about. But then purchasing Fox is that I'm afraid that Fox Searchlight might go the way of Touchstone, and uh, I'm a little troubled by that. I have to admit, but we'll yeah. see. Time will tell. But um, but anyway, Bill Warshawski's out there. Uh, there's also a restoration of the original Benji from 1974, and yeah. uh, it's it's always been panned and scanned. It's never been issued in widescreen. They, they've done a uh, Mill Creek has issued it, and uh, they've done a pretty good job, you know, cleaning up the picture and putting it out in widescreen. So for people who are fans of Benji, that's available. There's a uh, Drag Me to Hell collector's edition, the Sam Raimi horror film from 2009. It's a double disc. Um, screen Factory. It's a new. Uh, it's a Screen Factory, yes. And uh, there, uh, it's some new extras on it. It's uh, there's an un- unrated cut and the original theatrical, of course. And uh, I, I kind of liked that movie. I enjoyed it. Uh, yeah. It was kind of a return, return it's, it's, to form for Sam Raimi. Right. It's him kind of dabbling yeah. his toe in his roots. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's got a good horror score from Chris Young. Um, mm-hmm. Attractive uh, attractive photography. This is true. So uh, Screen Factory, speaking of them, they've also issued the uh, 1967 thriller with James Caan and Catherine Ross. Uh, games, which is a movie that I saw probably 30 years ago, and I have I don't remember a thing about it. Uh, but I'm I'm dying to see this again. Uh, unfortunately, didn't get a review copy of this one, but I'm I'm gonna probably spring for it myself. But it's an early James Con. James. Uh, James Con, yes. Mm-hmm. It's uh, six, sixty-seven. So games is the Ross. name of the movie. No, uh, games. Yes, yes, games. And uh, it's hmm. directed by Curtis Harrington, who made uh, just a lot of horror-type films, genre pictures. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, James Caan and Catherine Ross. So, and what year, and, what year uh, was Rain People? Where, where does this fall for James Caan? It was 69. It was two years later. Okay. So, yeah. But anyway, so Games has been issued. It's been notoriously hard to find also. It's been a movie that you uh, – it was really hard to, to locate. But um, The Night of the Living Dead, Criterion, has been mm. issued finally. And I I have one. I haven't gotten time to look at it yet, but it has the uh, the work 
the work print of the film as well on a separate disc that's about 10 minutes longer than the uh, in the original film. And there's tons work of print. extras on there. Yeah, work print. It's called Night of Anubis is the name of the work print. <laughs> they even gave it a different title. But, so uh, this, is, this is my issue with uh, – I'd be interested to see what Criterion did with it. But oh, I've heard some it movies, some, Yeah, well, that's kind of my issue with it. Uh, I mean, oh, some yeah. movies aren't aren't meant to look uh, very polished and clean. You know, some some movies work better be, because they're not. And I think like a like Night of the Living Dead should look like you're watching it on some public access station at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I know this might be sacrilege to some people that are crazy about it out there, but uh, that uh, yeah. feeling of the movie for me, I don't know how it would well, play pristine. It's true. You got a point. And, uh, but apparently this was a George Romero thing. He was working on this up until his death. So he supervised the transfer, and what I'm hearing is, and like I said, I haven't gotten a chance to look at it, but I've heard that they were very careful to preserve enough of the natural film grain to give it a, you know, the mm-hmm. the grain to to make it look real film-like, but also to clean up the the dirt at the same time. So it's it has a, a very film-like quality, but but it's also been cleaned, you know, and it's sharpened up, and so I, I don't know. I hear good things, but. You you got a good point. Yeah, because we, we. I wonder if that's. I wonder if that's partly why they why they included the work print in there. I mean, I, I would imagine the yeah. work the work print is of much lesser quality than their restoration. But yeah, uh, probably. You know what's is. all all what's always surprising is when you see behind the scenes photos of Night of the Living Dead, and uh, they're in color, because your association to that film everything is black and white. You don't mm-hmm. associate it with a color world. Uh, it's jarring when you see those photos. Oh, absolutely! You're exactly right. Yeah, it's uh, it it is, and and some of those color stills are actually on the uh, the Blu-ray. I'm told, and uh, uh, there are there are some. You know, this thing's been released in so many different uh, formats by so many different yeah. labels because uh, the rights issues were up for grabs. And so there's a, a lot of extras that they couldn't carry over that are owned by previous uh, distributors. Like uh, they had all the George Romero commercials, you know, because he used to do television commercials before he did Night of the Living Dead, and those were on some of the previous issues but not on this one. And, and there was a parody called Night of the Living Bread, which is not on this one as well. But I, you can probably find that stuff on YouTube. But anyway, uh, so a couple other titles that I was – really uh, excited about. One is, this was supposed to come out last month. They delayed it. I think we mentioned it on last month's show, but I'll mention it again. Threads, which is the uh, 1984 made-for-British television film about what would happen should a nuclear bomb be dropped. And this came out around the time that Testament and the day after uh, came out, but this was the most graphically violent of the three. And it kind of, it's directed by... um, Mick Jackson, who went on to make uh, the Bodyguard, <laughs> but uh, mm. among other the things, the only movie more the only movie more with a scenario more horrific than uh, Threads. <laughs> yeah, right, right. 
but uh, I, I saw a thread years ago, probably about 20 years or more, and I just the thing that stood out for me was it, it actually shows you what happened, you know, after the bomb is dropped and how people continue to try to live, and when food becomes scarce, yeah. uh, there had these peddlers peddling rats out of a truck because that's all they have to eat and things of that, and it's really it's very depressing, but also. You know, I guess it might not be a bad thing to look at in this day and age when people take that stuff so lightly. Yeah, I was about to say, you know, the 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 um that was that was a big topic uh in the early eighties and they dealt with it head on. Yeah. Um un, unlike um some of the movies in the fifties when we had similar fears. Uh yeah. made kind of sci made kind of sci fi horror out of those themes. But uh we're due for uh or do for another one because uh, if there is a third world war, uh, it'll it'll be nuclear uh, more than likely, and uh, there we have some agitators out there that uh, you know could potentially be the ones to instigate. <clears throat> uh, so yeah. I think it might be valuable to revisit some of these movies or or make another one. But if they made another one today. It would be, uh, you know, it would be a Roland Emmerich bullshit, you know, uh, which <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, I don't think that's productive to make it no, seem like an exciting that. summer blockbuster. Nope, that's not what we need. You're exactly right. So yeah, it's. Uh, I, I'm glad they put it out there. I always, I liked all of those the day after, and, and Testament was the other one with Jane Alexander, which oh, extremely powerful. Oh my God, yeah. it's just so. Just so moving. Um, I, I ran that for a group of. Uh, I used. To, I was hosting some movie screening a couple of years ago for a uh, for a, a, a group who wanted to do film screenings about movies that dealt with issues uh, that were topical issues, and I ran that. And uh, the entire room full of people just they were just speechless when it was over. I said, "Gosh, more people yeah. need to see this movie." I said, "Yeah, they sure do," because. It's uh, it's just so powerful, all of those, and like I said, in their own way. So yeah, but on a lighter subject, the Thomas Crown Affair. Uh, there's a 50th anniversary edition of the original 1968 Thomas Crown Affair, and uh, this one has uh, the audio commentary by Norman Jewison has a brand new 4K restoration of the movie. Um, has another audio commentary with Nick Redman from Twilight Time, and he's loaning his talents out to Kino, who issued this one. Uh, has an interview with the title designer, Pablo Ferro, and the uh, another interview, camera interview, with uh, Norman Jewison, and a featurette on the set uh, as they were filming it. So I, I like the Thomas Crown Fair. I like both of them, and the original is, uh, you know, it's light. It's a light souffle, I guess you would say, but it's... Uh, so stylishly done, and uh, I yeah. don't know. Just you know, I love McQueen and Faye Dunaway during that that time when they were making movies. And it's just I, I don't know. I just have a very soft spot in my heart for that one. So I can I can um, understand a nostalgic connection to it. Uh, yeah, the movie to me is uh, really outdated in in its look. Uh, Especially, I think the movie was so enraptured in presenting like the latest of everything, whether it be fashion or cars yeah. or lifestyle or any of that stuff, that it became outdated not too long after it came out. 
whereas the Victorian uh, had more classical feel to it. Um, yeah. And uh, and I frankly I think the McTiernan version is just a lot more fun and involving. Um, it is for me personally. I'll give you that. Yeah, it's it's got a little more uh, bite, shall we say? The original is yeah. just, like I said, a, a kind of a light souffle. Um, but I uh, and I love, of course, the uh, the you know we we know I'm a big uh, uh, Michel Legrand fan. I mean, I've said that many right. times, and he did the uh, score and that song uh, by Alan and Marilyn Bergman. The windmills of your mind is just uh, one of my favorite songs of all time. And so a lot of a lot of stuff I embrace there. So I'll 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 yeah, get back to that one. Yeah, it's great to see Steve McQueen in that in that role. That that was a role yeah. that uh, he really had to sell himself for because no one saw him as a sophisticate, you know. Yeah, there was talk of a uh, Michael J. Uh, 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 Michael B. Jordan. Sorry, I'll get it out. Uh, they're doing doing a third version of it. I'd heard, but I don't know if that's going to come to pass or not. But they had announced that like a year ago or something. But I'll be. I thought they were going to do a sequel there for a while to the McTiernan one. There was talk of that. Yeah. And that never came to pass. Damn, so, damn guy had to be sent to prison. No, no. Damn it. <laughs> you know, missed opportunity. Well, um, so let's see. Uh, the other one I was going to mention here is uh, Warner Archive has uh, issued Leatherface, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 from 1989. Jeff Burr. And this was, that's the one, yep. This is the one that it was notorious uh, when it came out because there were all kinds of battles with the Motion Picture Association of America because of the uh, the stuff that was cut from it. Uh, they just went back and forth, back and forth with the ratings board. And this is uh, an unrated version of it. I'm not sure how complete it is, uh, but it has. You're going to love this. There's a documentary about the stuff that was cut and the deleted uh, footage. And it's called, uh, the name of the documentary is um, We Know What to Do with Them Spare Parts. <laughs> hmm. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I, uh, I don't think highly of this movie, uh, but um, or or really many of the Chainsaw sequels. But um, Yeah, it's not good, uh, I'll admit. But yeah, it, does have, it does have the best trailer. Uh, mm-hmm. Which you know the uh, almost like an Excalibur kind of trailer, where the uh, the dead hand like breaks from the water, the surface of the lake, and uh, throws a chainsaw in the air, and Leatherface catches it. It's <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of a tug of cheek uh, trailer. That's true. That's that's a good point. Yeah, it is. It is a good trailer. It sure is. So uh, we'll move on to uh, February the 20th here, and um, we have the Twilight Time stuff that came out that week, uh, and that was last Tuesday, and there's some really good titles here. First of all, we'll just say uh, there's the Manhattan, Mur- a, sorry, Manhattan Murder Mystery, the Woody Allen film from 1993. It was released in summer of 93, but you remember as well as I do, I'm sure, that's they were shooting this movie when all the allegations yeah. came forth the first time, and uh, he was it was a very chaotic. It was filmed under a very chaotic uh, at a very chaotic time, I guess you would say. But and yet I love uh, the movie. 
I think it's I think it's really uh, a lovely, funny little movie. Um, and uh, Woody Allen actually said, because the the whole separation was going on at that time, Woody Allen actually said that Mia Farrow called him and said, "So what time was my call tomorrow?" Like she was still under the impression that she was co-starring in the movie with him. <laughs> and, he, and he said that, "Are, are you nuts?" You're not going to do this movie with me. Like, uh, and he recast with Diane Keaton, which Diane Keaton works infinitely well in, in that movie. Alan Alda, yeah. and it's a good cast. Sure is. Yeah, and there's a, I haven't seen it in quite a while, and I watched it again the other night. And, uh, of course, as usual, the only extras are the music and effects track and the theatrical trailer because he doesn't allow any extras. Uh, that's part of his stipulation for them releasing these things. But, uh, you know, it looks great. They've done a great job uh, with the picture. And, uh, there, you know, there's some surprises that I'd forgotten about, plot twists that I had kind of, you know, put in the back of my mind and went back and looked yeah. at it again. And and uh, I just remember when it came out, I was so excited because I heard that he was collaborating with Marshall Brickman, who I knew was his collaborator on, uh, you know, The Sleeper and Annie Hall in Manhattan. And, so I was excited because that was the first film they had made since those days. And, of course, they haven't made another one since uh, that I'm aware of. They haven't collaborated. So that was another. Did uh, they collaborate on Bullets in... over Broadway? I thought they were uh, together. Oh, I Douglas. Um, yeah, Douglas, Douglas McGrath. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah Manhattan Murder so... Mystery is surprising in, in the elements that do work. and. There are elements uh, or sections in the movie that do drum up uh, a bit of effective suspense, which is yeah. surprising coming out of Woody Allen. But, I mean, that being said, and I said this a few months ago, the ending, uh, <clears throat> the execution of the ending just doesn't work. Uh, yeah, I agree. Because, the, because there's an element of Woody Allen like, um, he, like Clint Eastwood. He just likes to, you know, Get going. Just let's capture. It. That's fine. That's fine. We got it. And he doesn't really have yeah. it. Like he didn't. He didn't kind of make. It feels a little half-hearted. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I agree. It wraps up too quickly. I think. And uh, he he says that sometimes. He says, "Well, people accuse me of being a workaholic." He said, "But uh, sometimes if there's a Nick game coming up, he said I'll just blow off the last shot so I can make it to the game on time." <laughs> So he said, so I'm not a workaholic right. like they say I am. <laughs> well, he might be a workaholic. He's just not a, he's just not a perfectionist. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. There's a difference there. You're exactly right. So, yeah, but it's, I, I'm glad they put it out. You know, uh, Twilight Time is putting out, you know, when the when Blu-rays first started coming out, they uh, Fox owned the rights to a lot of these Woody uh, titles, and they were putting them out, and then they, they just stopped because they uh, saw there wasn't a big profit in it. And so... Twilight Time has picked up the mantle, and they they put out a big chunk of his catalog, and they continue to do mm-hmm. so. And I'm I'm glad because it's nice to have these with an upgraded picture and all. But anyway, they also issued uh, another Twilight Time title. But uh, be curious if you've ever seen this one. It was one of the few directorial efforts of Paul Newman, the effect of gamma yeah. rays on Man in the Moon Marigold. No, I haven't. That's uh that's based on a play though, right? I I, I think yeah. I have read the play in theater school, uh, but I didn't even know that that movie existed. Yes, 
uh, I, it has been notoriously hard to find on home video. I don't even think that it was issued on VHS or DVD. I think this may be the first home video release of it ever, if I'm not mistaken. And it's uh, it, it has um, uh, Joanne Woodward and also their daughter, uh, who is listed in the credits as Nell Potts, because I guess they didn't want the nepotism uh, accusations to haunt them. So, but she looks just like Joanne Woodward, and she also was in Rachel Rachel, one of his other directorial efforts. She played yeah. the young uh, Joanne Woodward. She looks just like her. There's no mistaking that it's their offspring. Uh, but I found this movie to be pretty effective. Uh, I I had I had always wanted to see it. It was so notoriously hard to find. Uh, it has a screenplay by Alvin Sargent. Who did the uh, who did Paper Moon and did uh, most of those Spider-Man movies in the 2000s, and he also did uh, Ordinary People, of course, and the uh, the Alan Pakula movie Love and Pain is the whole damn thing. He did that one as well. So he's you know he was a great screenwriter and he um he he pinned the uh, he adapted the play here and so I um I, I found this to be pretty effective. Uh, she's basically the mother from hell, I would say, <laughs> in the movie Joanne Woodward. She's just brings all this emotional baggage to her children, and the, the youngest daughter is the only one who may have a chance of having a normal life. The oldest one is just, she's already too far gone. You can forget about her. You can go ahead and write her off. But <laughs> It is anyway, based on a play, isn't it, or, or is it? Yeah, it is. Paul Dundell Paul I mean, wrote the play, yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah I was aware of uh, Rachel Rachel and, uh, and, of course, Harry and Son, but I wasn't aware of anything else that he directed. Yeah, this is uh, well. He did Glass Menagerie too, I, I believe. In oh yeah, 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 yeah. But, which is uh, for me the all-time greatest play, uh, and not not a great uh, not a great movie version. I mean, I love that uh, I love Joanne Woodward, and I think Karen Allen's fine, but I think mm-hmm. uh, Malkovich is completely wrong for the that part of Tom. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. I can't argue with that. It's uh, this is. I think this is much better in the in the Thematically, uh, this you know effects of of, uh, of gamma rays on men and the movie Marigold. There's a lot of similarities in the uh, the material. You know, there's a lot of similar themes, shall we say? So, and uh, of course, Joanne Woodward's in both. So it makes you wonder what 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 brought him back to this type of thing <laughs> again and again. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but it's it's good. I'm going to recommend that uh, anybody who's listening has seen it to seek that out. It's it's a it's a curio in the career of Paul Newman that kind of fell through the cracks. That uh, it should not be as forgotten as it is. And um, and then uh, they also issued a really really great film. This has been one of my favorite films ever since of the '60s. Ever since I saw it about 25 years ago on cable. And this is another one that was never issued on DVD, never issued on Blu-ray. It was the film debut of Martin Sheen, The Incident, which uh, mm-hmm. has an incredible cast. And it's basically about a group of people who were held up on a subway. Uh, and they're held uh, you know, by um, Tony Musante and um, uh, Martin Sheen, or, or the thugs who uh, hold the passengers. Um, and um, they, they, uh, it's, the, the cast is basically an interesting mix of veteran actors and new newcomers at the time, like uh, you've got Bo Bridges, you've got Donna Mills, you have uh, uh, Brock Peters, 
Ruby D. And interestingly, you ha- you also have Jack Guilford, the uh, the Cracker Jack man from the Cracker Jack commercials of the seventies. But you also have Ed McMahon, which uh, who's pretty effective here, and you wouldn't think that. Really, he really is. He really is. I mean, at first you're like stunt casting, but then you he's really effective. He plays this uh this very cynical dad who's carrying his toting his daughter along, and he and his wife are arguing the whole time, and they get on the the subway, and he just keeps making these cynical comments. I was laughing out loud at some of the things he said, uh, some of his dialogue, but it's, he's really good. You would be surprised. So uh, huh. it's just this is a really, really good movie. Uh, it's shot in uh, stark black and white by Ger- Gerald, Gerald Hirschfield, who also photographed Young Frankenstein for uh, Mel Brooks. And I don't know if Mel Brooks had seen this and chose Gerald Hirschfield for that very reason. I don't know, but it's just uh, it's really, really a good film. And I'm so glad Twilight Time put it out. And it has a director commentary. Larry Pierce is still around with us, and he's you and I mm. talked about off there about he's yeah. the director of Wired, the ill-fated uh, John Belushi <laughs> biopic. So, among other things, he also directed uh, The Other Side of the Mountain, Parts 1 and 2, which were pretty big hits when they came out about the the, uh, the skier who was paralyzed from the neck down, Gil Kenmont. And uh, so, good, uh, I'm, I kind of have a soft spot in my heart for those movies as well. So, anyway, the incident from Twilight Time, and one more Twilight Time, is uh, Harry and Walter Go to New York, directed by Mar- Mark Rydell from 1976. This has an incredible cast in it as well. Uh, if only the film were as good as the cast. <laughs> That's the problem. It's just one of these films that kind of meanders along, and it's about these two vaudeville guys who want to rob a bank, but it it likes to think that it's funnier than it is. But uh, the, listen to this cast. It's awesome. It's James Caan, Michael Caine, Elliot Gould, Diane Keaton, uh, Jack Guilford again, uh, Charles Durning, Ted Cassidy from The Addams Family, who played uh, Lurch. <laughs> <laughs> Carol Kane. <laughs> I mean, do I need to say more? <laughs> wow. This is what year uh, is this? Pretty nineteen seventy six. Oh so, wow. Uh yeah, it's pretty I mean, it's worth seeing for the cast. The cast is 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 I mean, these are like some of the great some of our favorite actors all in one place, let's just say that. And uh, it's just loaded with them. Yeah, it kinda makes you wonder. Around. Maybe maybe it's maybe it goes back to the thing with Monuments Men. <clears throat> Maybe they just really liked Mark Mark Rydell. Uh, yeah. You know, it's like maybe they all just really dug George Clooney and they didn't necessarily care what they were doing. <laughs> exactly. I think you're right. I, I had wanted to see this movie for a long time. It was only issued on DVD in pan and scan format. It was filmed in uh, Panavision 2.35 to 1 and it was shot by Laszlo Kovacs, whom we, I think we're all wow. friends with him. And uh, so... You know, I wanted to see it correctly, and finally they they rectified that. And it's beautiful to look at. It has a nice score by David Shire, and uh, mm. lyrics by Alan and Marilyn Bergman. Again, we just talked about them as well. So you know, it's good stuff to embrace there. But the movie, the plot of the movie, just doesn't quite quite doesn't quite make the grade. But uh, it's worth seeing for this cast, if nothing else. And so you know, a, a marginal recommendation on that one. But I think a solid batch of Twilight Time titles. I got to give it up to them. They did a really good job for February. So uh, there we go. And uh, we have um, 
a couple other things here. I have the Nightwalker from Scream Factory, which is uh, one of William Castle's films. William Castle, of course, was the guy who did all the uh, he had all the gimmicks when you would do uh, when he would have his films like The House on Haunted Hill. He would have the skeletons flying through the audience. And, uh, this is one of his non-gimmicky films, but it has uh, Barbara Stanwyck and Robert Taylor uh, reteaming for their first film after their real life divorce, which is interesting. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's about this wealthy widow that's haunted by her husband, and and she's seduced by a stranger, and then but she's seeing all this in her dreams, and she's not sure if it's a dream or really happening. And it's it's an interesting movie. I saw it back when I was in high school, actually, on uh, turned up on cable, I think. And uh, uh, the Florida Project is uh, also being issued uh, on, was issued on the 20th for anybody who hasn't caught up with that yet. So, we'll, you know, it's a newer Beautiful title. Movie. Yep, sure he is. Wanted to throw it out there for uh, for anybody who hasn't seen it, and it's available now. And um, and then we're getting down to February 27th. The um, well, let me say this first. Of, like, uh, yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, about the William Castle movie. Uh, imagine how different uh, cinema history uh, might have been had he been allowed to direct Rosemary's Baby as he wanted to. Oh yeah. Um, because he was really volleying, volleying to do that. Um, and he wanted to do it as a serious-minded uh, movie and not the schlock with, with which he'd become accustomed. Mm-hmm. But, um, and also with The Florida Project, I was uh, with my, uh, my best friend at Best Buy, because uh, he's actually somebody that still goes to Best Buy every week to buy some Blu-rays. And, oh, uh, <laughs> and he, yeah, he's, he's very dedicated uh, and he was like, he read my review of Florida Project and he wanted to see it. So he had it at his aunt. He said, so should I buy it? And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> I said, it is absolutely one of my favorite movies of the year, but I I do not think you'll like it. Uh, and the main reason why is because the, the, the movie de- it doesn't thrive on plot. It's not a plot movie. Uh, no, it is not. And uh, and I know what he, I know the kinds of movies that he responds to and yeah. And they're not kind of the slice of life observational dramas. They're the yeah. plot trip. Yeah. yeah, my son. I tried to show it to him as well. He's you know he's a he's in uh, he's a junior in high school, and I I uh, he he always likes to catch up on the stuff. And so I had uh, the screener at home. They'd sent us the Academy screener, and we watched it. And he just didn't. He's a plot driven kind of guy too, and he didn't really respond to it as well as I I thought he might. Uh, so yeah, if if you're a plot-driven person, you're probably gonna have some some issues there. Just be forewarned. But, uh, but anyway, uh, so we'll uh, February 27th is this upcoming Tuesday, and we'll go through these real fast. Uh, I know you guys were talking about Colossus: The Forbin Project on uh, might have been the last yeah. show. I know Dean brought it up, and well, Screen Factory's yeah. issuing that one uh, on the 27th. So that's that's probably why uh, Dean happened to have come across it because it's it's now being released by uh, Screen Factory. So for anybody who was curious about that, um, the, uh, Olive Films is issuing The Birdman of Alcatraz, starring Burt Lancaster, uh, from yeah. 1962. So that's being issued. And uh, the uh, I know I think you've talked about this one, or, or maybe Dean, I'm not sure. Uh, the 7852 Hitchcock shower scene, the uh, yeah. documentary about the yeah, that's coming out uh, Tuesday from Shout Factory. It's worth a look. And, uh, it's, 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 ha- it's half a world. 
it's half a worthwhile documentary, but the, the mm-hmm. half of it that is worthwhile is, uh, makes it worth it. Um, yeah. because, because half of the movie is populated by people, by young people that really, not because they're young necessarily, but because they don't really know anything. Uh, mm-hmm. they just look at the scenes and all they can say, wow, look at that. That's so great. <laughs> and you could have cut that, all that shit out. But the, the stuff that's real meaty, yeah, are are the film historians that talk about the themes of the movie? Talk about the fact that when Norman Bates goes to uh, remove the painting from the wall and look through the little peephole at Janet Lee undressing, uh, they talk about the meaning of that painting. That painting has relevance to the themes of the movie. Um, and then you have a scene where Walter Murch is going literally frame by frame, and 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 to you what each frame does in the shower sequence uh, really to a nerdy degree and that's exactly what I wanted from 7852 or whatever the movie's called so mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it is worthwhile in the end to watch it good yeah I haven't caught up with it yet several of my colleagues have told me about it and uh, they suggested that I see it so I, I just didn't get around to it yet but yeah I'm, I'm going to be sure I do that um, Basket Case, the horror film from 1981, is being issued in a limited edition by Arrow, and um, that's been issued several times before, but it's coming through again. That movie, is, and, um, that movie has always been a video staple. Like yes, anytime, anytime you walk into a video store, it was always right there in the horror section. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I can, re- I can remember. That's probably one of the first titles I ever saw when I walked in a video store in the horror section as a teenager. Yeah. For sure. Um, so Aquino has issued a, uh, and we were talking about the Touchstone Pictures movies, and these are two more titles. They've been released as a double feature. Two from director Mike Binder, writer and director Mike Binder, uh, Crossing the Bridge and Indian Summer from 1992 mm-hmm. and 1993. So, uh, you know, uh, Crossing the Bridge has Stephen Baldwin in it and Jeffrey Tambor, and then we have Indian Summer with uh, Alan Arkin. Matt Craven, uh, Diane Lane, the late Bill Paxton, who died this very day, a year ago, Elizabeth Perkins, wow. Kevin Pollack, Vincent Spano, Julie Warner, and Kimberly Williams. So, you know, if you're a Mike Binder fan, and I think both of those have their merits. I, yeah, uh, the only you know. the only person I remembered from Indian Summer was um, Elizabeth Perkins. That's odd. And, and she um, she also had a good run at a certain time, too. You know what movie I remember that Elizabeth Perkins was in it, and it's a movie that I don't think we've ever ever mentioned on the show before. Mm. And I love, I love having you on because you always you bring up dozens of titles every month that we've never mentioned on the show before. <laughs> but I always like to throw in some too. The movie that I remember Elizabeth Perkins from is that movie Sweetheart's Dance. Do you remember that movie with yeah. Don Johnson? Yeah. There yeah, you go. We we just mentioned it. We don't have to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to mention the title. The last, the last show I mentioned Traces of Red. At this show, I'll mention Sweetheart's Dance. So there you go. <laughs> I'm, I'm not recommending either. Okay. Well, good to know anyway. At least it's been brought up. We've discussed it, so brought it up at least. Yeah. So, well, the infamous film where uh, wherein Howard Hughes, uh, his last directorial effort, um, and it's the film that was controversial because he invented a new bra for Jane Russell so that her bosoms would 
photograph uh, adequately on camera. The Outlaw is the movie I'm talking about. Walter Houston, of course, Jane Russell, Thomas Mitchell. And uh, that's been issued by uh, Kino in an unrated version. I guess it's the uncensored version, I would assume, from 19... It was filmed in 1943, but uh, wasn't released until 46 because uh, because of the censorship thing and the public out, outcry and because of her abundant cleavage, shall we say. So... <laughs> That's uh, but that Kino has done a new restoration of the picture, and uh, so there you are. And the uh, the 1963 Academy Award winner Tom Jones, directed by Tony Richardson. Uh, that's that's another uh, Criterion issue, and they've uh, put out two different cuts of the film. It includes the theatrical version and the 1989 director's cut, which is actually six minutes shorter, seven minutes shorter. And wow. um, there's some, um, you know, there's a nice little essay booklet here. There's new interviews with uh, Vanessa Redgrave on uh, her former husband, Tony Richardson. There's um, uh, audio archived audio audio interview with uh, composer John Addison on the score, and uh, there's a new interview with the um, about the uh, director's cut with the director of photography, Walter uh, Lassily. So, uh, you know, if you're a fan of Tom Jones, there you go. And, the movie, yeah, uh, the movie Tom Jones. Yeah, Tom Jones, the movie. Don't want people right, to right. get confused. <laughs> Don't like, yeah. Nothing to do with the singer, totally different thing. Uh, yeah, so there's no, there's no socks in the underwear in this in this film. So, uh. <laughs> no. <laughs> Good. Good one. Um so here's one you may that should bring up interesting discussion. All of Films is issuing the uh, Jim McBride's 1989 biopic Great Balls of Fire. Wow. <laughs> what about that one? I defend. I defend it. I, I don't know how you yeah. feel about Great Balls of Fire, but uh, I, I think it's. Uh, yeah. I think it's. It's like a 50s rock and roll uh, comedy. Uh, yeah. I think it's I think it's really good, and I think it's a very brave Dennis Quaid performance because he plays it, and I have to feel intentionally as a cartoon almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but the movie is a lot of fun, and it's a lot more fun than uh, Jerry Lee Lewis's life would probably dictate. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I. Um... It's definitely not the warts and all biopic that uh, that they could have done, but I, but I like the tone of it, and I, and I saw it in a the theater and I enjoyed it, and uh, yeah, it has it has its charms. You're right. So um, and we were just talking. Yeah, about, I, I, uh, I I do I do remember um, talking to the producer of it mm-hmm. years ago because the producer is the same guy that did um, Poltergeist. Uh, Michael Gray's, I think, was his name. So he was That's on the right. Poltergeist, yeah. but we we ended we ended up talking about Great Balls of Fire and, and me loving Great Balls of Fire, and him talking about what a wasted opportunity it was, because mm. he jumped on the project based on a script that Terrence Malick had written, oh, and wow. uh, about Jerry Lee Lewis, and what they ended up making was much different. <laughs> than so what I would Malick say. Group. 
Yeah, that's that's. So I'm like, ever since then, I'm like, why? Can't, where's that script? I'd love to read a Terrence yeah. Malick script about Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, please, please, if we can find that. If anybody knows, let us know. <laughs> we want to read that. <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about Paul Newman. Well, two of his uh, two of his films, one from the '60s and one uh, from the '70s. These are connected because uh, it's the same character in both films: Harper and the Drowning Pool. So those mm. are two Warner Archive releases. And um, I think are William those Goldman successful movies? movies? I think Harper I remember was, seeing Harper years ago. But. Yeah, I think Harper was pretty successful because they did do the sequel, The Drowning Pool. Uh, Harper, I think, is written by William Goldman, I believe, if memory serves. I'm not sure about The Drowning Pool, but uh, I'm pretty sure it's a William Goldman who wrote, of course, uh, Butch Cassidy and Marathon Man. Yeah. So many other things. Well, I mean, I mean, successful in terms of of good. <laughs> oh, oh, it's, well, yeah, uh, financially successful, but yeah, I think it's pretty good. Uh, I don't think it's one of his best things. It uh, it was generally well reviewed. Uh, the Drowning Pool, not so much so. But I've never seen The Drowning Pool. I never. It's one I never got around to. I always wanted to, but the reviews kind of scared me off. The, the reviews were kind of tepid. For the for the follow up. So anyway, uh, Warner Archive has issued both of those, and uh, we're just talking about Bill Paxton, who died a year ago today. And uh, as we're taping this, so Mighty Joe Young is a Bill Paxton. Uh, he's got the lead in that with Charlie's Theron from 1998, yeah. and uh, Disney is issuing this as part of their movie club, which you can order online in a uh, 20th anniversary edition. And that has been previously uh, available in terrible-looking transfers, so I'm glad they're they're putting some love and care into that and giving it an upgrade. That is uh, so. Did this? That's the Joe Johnston movie, right? That's the, the one, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, is this the Disney thing that they've started since they've broken from Netflix? Uh, no, they've been doing this for a while, a couple of years okay. now. Uh, they have they put out some of their titles. I guess the ones they feel like they might make a buck on. Uh, they're not obviously not releasing the Mike Binder stuff or Baby Secret of the Lost <laughs> Legend like we just mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> Those are lost leaders and they know it, I guess. But uh, there are some titles that they won't sell in stores, but you can order them, and this is one of them. I think they may have done. Uh, one of the Witch Mountain movies previously is a Blu-ray, I believe. Yeah. Things like that. You you get the point. So, uh, you know, occasionally they'll throw out a title. Maybe The Shaggy Dog or something like that. Or I think they might have done Absent-Minded Professor. So they've done some of those titles that they I guess they feel like they have some sort of demand. But still no Song of the South. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Has anyone released that? No, never, never. That's uh, that's the one movie. There have been hints that they might be doing something, and you know the the seventieth anniversary came and went. That was nineteen forty six, so two thousand sixteen was the seventieth anniversary, and people were hinting that something might happen. Never did. I don't know why they just don't license it out to another, you know, a boutique label who will do it justice. Because if they're not gonna if they're not gonna do what should be done with it, then just let somebody else have it. Yeah, um, but they're they're so pro- they're so protective of their image. 
They um, really are. But uh, I, I think they'd do anything to keep it from seeing the light of day. Especially now that they so, own everything. <laughs> oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, they're very they're very cautious about that sort of thing. But we were we were laughing the other day about some of the movies they did in the early eighties, you know, how the <laughs> and uh one of my coworkers I was mentioning to him, he had never heard of this title. I'm curious if you have. What about Condor Man from nineteen eighty one with uh, Michael Crawford? <laughs> oh. Yeah. It was uh, their attempt so. at yeah, some sort of I think super- I remember that movie. That was another one that's uh, been notoriously hard to find for some reason. It was issued on D V D about twenty years ago and then it was withdrawn from the market and uh never to be seen again. But yeah. It well it helps those... it helps that you're the only it helps that you're the only one trying to find it. <laughs> <laughs> oh I got a copy of it when it was out when it was available. You you know I would, but <laughs> I do have it. But uh yeah, it was it was at a time when they were putting out stuff like uh, The Devil and Max Devlin with Bill Cosby and Elliot Gould and mm. uh <laughs> The Last Flight of Noah's Ark. You remember those titles? <laughs> and wow. The Watcher in the Woods with Betty Davis. That was another one they put out. The Watcher in the Woods. Yeah. That was a popular movie. Yeah, they did fairly well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And uh, what was the other one? Uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes. That was another stab at horror right. they did. So, you know, they had some interesting... It was interesting what they were doing in the early 80s and... And then the animated movies, you know, weren't faring much better because they were putting out stuff like Fox and the Hound and the Black Cauldron. So (laughs) they weren't. They weren't Oliver and Company. So those weren't exactly the the most memorable films in their their catalog. So anyway, I guess that uh, wraps it up for our Blu-ray report for the month of February. Uh, Wow. There you go. 